0: Good morning everyone, um, my name is Luke and I'm a ministry trainee here at Moreland's Church um, and the time has come for us to learn from God's word together, um, so if you have a Bible uh, to hand then please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1 um, verses 17 to 27. Um, okay, so 2 Samuel 1, 17 to 27. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jasher. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew or rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, The bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life, they were loved and gracious, and in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished.
1: Well, thank you very much, Luke, and thank you, Nathan. Let me add my welcome uh, to you if you are watching at home. It's great to have you join us, and if you're in the link building over there, uh, a very warm welcome to you, and welcome to you here uh, in the chapel. I hope you've got that passage open uh, that Luke read, and uh, hopefully you've got a a piece of paper with an outline uh, in the middle of it that will be helpful. The Christian life is lived in a kind of a tension between two doctrines, the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of redemption. That is, on the one hand, Christians are people who are deeply concerned with God's eternal purposes, his great salvation plan in Jesus Christ, the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel to the nations as we've been praying, growing in godliness, doing the things that last for eternity. The Bible teaches that these things are core to what God is doing in the world. These are the things that matter to him and so they must be our priority. On the other hand, the Bible also teaches that God created us human. He made us creatures, part of a created world. He made us in flesh and blood. And our humanity matters to God as well. And the created world and human experience are not things to shun or be embarrassed about, but to engage in. We are to soak up the beauty and wonder of the natural world. We are to rejoice in art and music, good food, good stories, friendship, sex with a spouse, games and sport, for all of these are gifts from God. And we are to grieve when these things are broken by sin or lost because of death. But any Christian knows that these two truths are lived out in a kind of tension. They run in parallel. They're both true at the same time. And if we loosen the tension on one side or the other, we get into difficulties. For example, if on the one hand we are so caught up with the eternal. We can deny that we are human. We fail to enjoy the creation like the writer to the Ecclesiastes, or take pleasure in a sexual relationship with the spouse like the writer of Song of Songs, or sing and dance like the psalmist, or grieve like David. On the other hand, it is so possible to emphasize creation and under-emphasize God's salvation plan that we become unconcerned with the things that God, are con- God is concerned with, with being godly, with making disciples, with the growth of the gospel. We find fulfillment in work rather than in Christ. We take more pleasure in hobbies than in church. We spend time and money on wasteful things rather than things that last for eternity. Well, come with me to what one Bible scholar has called the most beautiful, heroic lament of all time. Because here we're going to see that tension between the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of redemption, between being human and heading towards eternity, embodied brilliantly in King David, as he expresses a very human grief and love for Jonathan and Saul. But this particular expression of grief And love comes at a particular moment, a turning point in Israel's history, in which God's purposes are moving inexorably towards the coming of Jesus as King. And so ultimately, this passage is going to point us towards one who embraced our humanity most fully, but also who redeemed it through his death on the cross. As we live out this tension of being human in a world under the shadow of death, it is Jesus who is our model and our hope. Being human and being hopeful then, that is the lesson of this passage. And the more we grasp our humanity in all its frailty and frustration of the flesh, the more we will hope for the future that Jesus has come to bring. That's the lesson from this passage. But before we turn to the passage, I need to mention two obstacles in our way. And the first is that, as Luke read it, you may have noticed just by the way it's set out that this is poetry. And when I say that, some of your hearts sink, don't they? Because we live in a society that is happy to communicate emotions by a simple text of an emoji or the line of a tweet. And poetry is no longer the currency of our time. It's interesting to, to read in the news, Just a couple of weeks ago, that poetry was the thing first dropped from the school curriculum as the schools play catch-up, something that I think is a tragedy and very short-sighted. And so as we come to this type of writing in the Bible, some of us will need to make a gear shift in our heads this morning. And if you are someone who carries your spear in the camp of the Philistines when it comes to poetry, can I invite you to come over to the other side this morning? Because whatever your experience at school was of studying Coleridge and Wordsworth and Byron, God is the greatest poet of all. And we're listening here to his words that are here to do us good. The second obstacle is the sheer inadequacy of the human preacher. It is impossible in a 35-minute sermon to do justice or even begin to do justice to the depth and brilliance of these 10 short lines of God's word. And therefore, can I suggest this is a piece of God's word that we not only need to analyse and exegete, and I'll do my best to help us with that, but to hear and to savour, and to sit under, and to allow these words of God to resonate in our minds through the week, like we might a good piece of music, so that it gets lodged there. Well, you'll see on the outline that I've put the structure of the poem uh, down for us. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the central section, the body, in 20 to 26. But before we do that, it's important to notice that this poem has both an introduction and a theme. Let's look at the introduction in verses 17 and 18. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Joshua. The introduction prepares us for what follows by making it clear that the song or poem is at the one time a deeply personal matter for David, but it's also a matter of public and permanent significance. Firstly, it's personal. All a lament is is grief put into words. So, we're listening here to the heartfelt emotion, the feelings, the expression of grief of one man, David, on the death of his friend Jonathan and Saul, king of Israel, whose deaths were recorded in the previous chapter of 1 Samuel. We'll come to the relationship between David and Saul in due course. But the first surprise as we read the poem, if you remember the story of 1 Samuel at all, is the sheer graciousness, the kindness of David towards Saul, who after all was David's enemy while he was alive. So as well as seeing Saul and Jonathan at their best, we're also going to get a glimpse of David at his best, a king of grace and mercy and kindness a king after God's own heart, so it's personal. But at the same time, notice that David makes his words a matter of public significance. Verse 18, we read that the lament is recorded in the book of Joshua, a chronicle of important national events that has since been lost. The only other reference to the book in the Old Testament is in Joshua 10, where the sun stands still at a great victory Israel has over the Ammonites so a book of great national significance and here at the beginning of his kingship the very first public order David gives as king is that the men of Judah that is specifically the men the fighting men be taught this song also known as the song of the bow in other words as David looks back on the lives of Saul and Jonathan What he writes is immensely forward-looking. At this momentous turning point in the story of God's kingdom, which if you were here last week, you may remember, is the hinge between the reign of Saul and the reign of David. David is going to teach the armies of Israel a particular military doctrine. These words are to shape the story of Israel's national and political life for the future. Because remember, the ultimate purpose of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel is not just to record history, but to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ and the fulfilment of God's kingdom. And therefore, these words are of permanent public significance. David's expression of grief for his friends matter to us, as we'll see. Well, if that's the case, what is it that he wants us to learn? What is to be at the heart of this doctrine that he's going to teach the nation? What is it we're to understand? Well, this is captured by the theme sentence or the refrain that you will have noticed provides a framework for the poem in 19, 25, and 27. Look at that refrain with me. Verse 19, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Verse 27, how the mighty have Have fallen. See, whether you like poetry or not, one of the benefits of good poetry, this might be a little bit less the case for some of the modern poetry that you hear at six o'clock in the morning on Radio 4, but one of the benefits of good poetry is that the structure or the bones or the skeleton of the thing is made more obvious. And if you look at those three verses, you can see here is the skeleton, here is what this poem is about. Year six, poetry. Notice the repetition, notice the chorus. What is it about? Makes it easy for us, doesn't it? Therefore, the occasion is the loss of Saul and Jonathan in the battle of Mount Gilboa, which is recorded in 1 Samuel 31. But the theme is how the mighty have fallen. Now, that might not be a great surprise given that he's recounting the death of his two great friends. But as many of you remember, this is more than uh, just a description of what's happening. It takes us back to the beginning of 1 Samuel and the first of three songs in these two books, a song of Hannah, the prophet Samuel's mother. That song, Hannah's song, gave us the theme tune of these whole two books of the Old Testament. And so how the mighty has fallen takes us back and reminds us in this piece of writing that actually doesn't mention God explicitly, it reminds us that after all, it is God who has done this. It is God who has brought down the mighty Saul. And it reminds us that God has been in charge of events all along. And it also reminds us that we must not look For salvation, we must not place our hope in the strong and in the mighty, but in the one who God has anointed as king, his chosen Messiah. In other words, as David grieves the passing of Israel's first king, we are to listen very carefully for the coming of the true king. What is on his heart is revealed in the song, And why we should put our hope in him comes in a surprising twist at the end. Human, grasping our humanity in a world in the valley of the shadow of death, and hopeful. Having grasped our humanity, where do we place our hope? Well, let's turn to the body of the poem, which will look under three headings. Rejection, Recognition, Relationship. David begins in verse 20 to 21 with a resistance or a rejection of what has happened. And he does that by wishing for two impossible things. First, he wishes for a total news blackout among the Philistines. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. See, Saul's defeat, Israel's defeat, was, of course, tremendous good news for the Philistines. It was a gospel that they wanted to proclaim. In 1 Samuel 31, we see them do that in a gruesome way. They take Saul's head from his body, they pin his body to the temple of their idols, and they proclaim far and wide this great news of the gospel of Israel's defeat. They have won, and they want to tell the world. There's a particular irony in verse 20. You may remember just after David's famous defeat of the giant Goliath, which was in Gath, back in 1 Samuel 17, the women of Israel sang songs for joy about God's victory and Philistine shame. And so now that moment has reversed and David wishes with all his heart that it was not so. Well, having wished that the news would be kept secret, he then, on the other hand, longs that the tragedy be acknowledged on a cosmic scale, verse 21. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. The reference to the shield of Saul not being anointed is a reminder that Saul, himself God's anointed, has failed in what he could have been when he met his death. His shield is lying in the dust of Mount Gilboa. God's anointed is lying in the dust of Mount Gilboa. And this is such a travesty that David calls down a curse upon the place that it happened. Just as God cursed the entire world back in Genesis 3. This is a demonstration of the seriousness, the awfulness of death and of sin that produces death. These things are so terrible, so incongruous with God's purposes, that creation itself gets broken, creation itself gets caught up in the drama, in the trauma. I don't know if you've ever felt that feeling that David expresses here, that you've experienced such grief and loss that you actually find yourself surprised or annoyed that the world is just carrying on as normal, as if nothing has happened as if the cosmos itself ought to acknowledge your grief. You're driving to the funeral. It's all you can think about. And through the car window, you see people carrying on their normal business. Children going to school, swinging their lunch boxes happily, just as any other day. Or you walk out of hospital with that life-changing diagnosis still ringing in your ears and you notice that the birds are singing and the sun is shining and people are laughing and chattering. And it seems so wrong that the world is carrying on as normal whereas your world has come crashing down. And David is expressing here a fundamental biblical truth that while we might get used to death... While we may expect it, it is something to be rejected. It is something incongruous. It is not natural. What was the single first word to escape from Jacqueline Kennedy's mouth when her husband, John F. Kennedy, was shot in the car seat beside her? No. Do not go gentle into that good night, wrote Dylan Thomas. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And what did Jesus do at the graveside of his friend Nazareth, uh, Lazarus? He wept. Death may be an inevitable part of being human, but it's not natural. It's something to resist and reject with all our hearts, and that's what David does. Well, having wished for the impossible, David moves to the central part of the lament, which is a simple recognition of what has been lost through death. Now, you may know that Hebrew poetry classically works with these repeated or contrasted lines in parallel. If you know that, it opens up a lot of the Old Testament for us, including the Proverbs, where you've got these two lines that's kind of repeated or developed And David uses that method here. And what he does is he creates some very powerful, vivid, larger-than-life images of Saul and Jonathan. So it's a little bit like a modern funeral. You often get a slideshow, don't you? As people are coming in and the music is playing, sometimes there are pictures of the person's life on the screen. And what, what are the pictures we put on the screen at the funeral? Well, we don't show them when they lost their temper that time. We don't show them in the hospital bed feeling sick. We show them at their best, don't we? We give the best of their lives and remember the good that has been taken away. And that's what David is doing here. He gives us three images. First is one of courageous warriors. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. In a few short lines, David takes us right into the heat of the battle. We can see the ferocity and the horror of hand-to-hand combat, the sword spilling blood, the bow cutting fat. And as a result, Israel had to look back with thankfulness for these courageous warriors. Despite all the bad things that could have been said of Saul from 1 Samuel, David focuses on and magnifies the good, but death has taken away. In the second image, right at the center of the poem, Beginning with those two names, Saul and Jonathan, David pulls back from the battlefield and simply reminds Israel that they have lost two great leaders, Saul and Jonathan. In life, they were loved and gracious, and in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. This is Saul and Jonathan at their best. There's no mention of the two occasions Saul tried to kill Jonathan Or his various defeats, his failures, his temper, his disobedience, his jealousy. All of that, of course, has gone with his death. But the whole point of a lament is to grieve the good that has been lost. And David says Israel have lost two great leaders. Eagles are the kings of the bird world. Lions are the kings of the animal world. And despite all that could have been said, David reminds Israel how fortunate they were to have such leaders. Well, the third thing he does in verse 24 is he now commands others to join in his grief of Saul because he was worthy of it. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Just as the Philistine daughters were not allowed to rejoice in verse 20. Now the daughters of Israel are commanded to mourn. Why? Because Saul's leadership for all its faults and failures did Israel more good than harm and they should be thankful. As we listen to David's grief, both for Jonathan who loved him and Saul who hated him, there's an important lesson for us here about being human. The part of being human is to learn to grieve the loss that death brings. So I think it's tempting for us. And if you're a Christian this morning and you've ever been to a a funeral, you've ever talked to somebody about another person who's died, it's tempting, isn't it? Because we're so convinced by the eternal, because we're so full of hope for the eternal, it is tempting to brush the tragedy of death under the carpet and sort of say, well, it's okay, he's gone to a better place. But actually, before we do that, it is important, it is human to look back with sadness for what death has taken away. Look back with sadness, look back with thankfulness for the good that has been lost, and to emulate that good ourselves. Unable to attend the funeral of an elderly relative of my wife Emma's recently because of COVID, we were given a written tribute instead. This man, born in 1930, spent the final six months of his life very sick, very frail, very alone. But that's not what we were remembering with a tribute. No, he was remembered at his best as a capable, energetic farmer, as a husband, a father, a grandfather, a long-term church member, a gospel man. He never grumbled the tribute read. He liked to talk. Always bright and cheery with a twinkle in his eye, large in life, concerned for others, a gentle man, always full of joy in the gospel, a godly man who loved life, loved family, loved children, loved the Lord, exercised his ministry far and wide to the very end. Simple words, aren't they? But they made us realize what we'd lost. They made us sad for what death had taken away, but thankful And if you're a young person this morning, don't those words encourage you to strive to become a person like that? So many funerals, people say things like, he loved his golf, or she loved her dogs. But to be remembered as a godly gospel man or woman who loved others, who served others, who loved God is something very special something every younger Christian should aspire to. Rejection, death is not natural. Recognition, death takes away good things. But it's in the third and final part of the poem that David's personal grief comes most clearly to the fore as he turns to his relationship with Jonathan. You'll notice that in verses 25 to 26, Saul is now left behind. And David focuses exclusively on the relationship between himself and Jonathan. We're going to look carefully at these words in the time that we've got left. Because as well as being the most personal part, they're also the key to that public significance. This is really the thing that David wants us to learn. In fact, these two verses shift the meaning and significance of everything I've said so far by a surprising final twist. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. I just want to draw your attention to three surprises. First of all, notice how these final lines lie outside the structure of the poem. The refrain, how the mighty have fallen, which came in verse 19 and now comes a second time in verse 25, gives us a kind of a a neat and and a classic kind of Hebrew poetic structure. It's framed around those two lines, isn't it? But David is not concerned with neatness. And after the formal conclusion in verse 25, he now launches into a final word about Jonathan. It's as if he can't help himself. And he breaks the rhythm and the pattern of the song. These lines are slightly ragged. They're less formal. And they give a sense that David is pouring out his heart in a climax of grief and emotion. And so we better listen very carefully because there's a sense in which this is really what David wants to say. Here is the point of the whole thing. The second surprise is the lavishness, the extravagance of what David says about Jonathan. If you glance back to verse 19, you'll see that the poem opens with that phrase, your glory, which could be translated your beauty. The word beauty or glory of Israel is a singular word in contrast to the plural of mighty in those three refrains. In other words, while the formal occasion of the poem is the death of Saul and Jonathan, at its real heart is Jonathan alone. And now speaking in the first person for the first time, David addresses Jonathan directly. He now gets very personal. The fallen warrior whose body lies shattered on the mountain of Gilboa is not just Saul's son, but he's David's friend, his brother, The third and most crucial surprise is the nature of their relationship. The language here will almost certainly strike us as extreme. In verse 26, David picks up two words used of Israel's admiration for Saul and Jonathan from verse 23, and then he applies them to David and Jonathan's relationship with heightened emphasis. So Jonathan and Saul were loved by Israel, but Jonathan was very lovely towards David. Saul and Jonathan were loved by Israel, but Jonathan's love for David was wonderful. So much that it was more wonderful than the love of women. Now, I'm not surprise you to learn that this statement has been taken in recent times as a suggestion of a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan. There are many, many reasons this cannot be right. For a start, the word love there is not the word the Old Testament typically uses for sexual love. It has a different word for that. Secondly, homosexual activity was both culturally unacceptable at this time and expressly condemned in the Bible. So the idea that a Bronze Age warrior king in his first public speech would come out as having a romantic relationship with the former king's son, is, as John Woodhouse puts it in his commentary, simply ludicrous. And if we cannot imagine a same-sex friendship without sliding into something sexual, says more about our sad, sad, shallow, sexualized culture than anything else. But there's a much more important lesson here than friendship. Look again at verse 26. And I wonder if you notice that the relationship is expressed in a rather peculiar way, considering the context. The context, remember, is David's grief for Saul and Jonathan. And David is singing Jonathan's praises as the glory of Israel. That means the best man in Israel. The beauty of Israel, the glory of Israel. And yes, there was a friendship between David and Jonathan, There was this mutual love and respect, something that is brought out a number of times in 1 Samuel as David and Jonathan keep on making these little covenants with each other. But notice the direction of the love that David is talking about. He's not actually speaking about his love for Jonathan, is he? He's speaking about Jonathan's love for him. And when you go back and look at those covenants, and I've put the references on the sheet if you'd like to chase it up in your own time, you realize that they were not just two friends kind of spitting on each other's palms and shaking hands and promising to be best friends forever. There was an asymmetry about the relationship, an inequality about the relationship, a particular shape to this relationship. And it's the key to the whole thing. This is the thing we need to understand. In one of those covenants, Jonathan swears his undying love to David. In another, he renounces his own claim to the throne. In another, he gladly accepts David's future reign. In another, he states that David's enemies are to be his enemies. Now, what does David do in return? David promises Jonathan protection. He promises that he'll be kind to his family, something we'll see coming true in another uh, couple of chapters. In other words, Jonathan and David, although they're often held up in, uh, uh, in Christian circles as an example and a model of friendship, which they may well be, that is not the point of this lament or of 1 Samuel. Now, it's not a model of friendship. It's a model of somebody recognizing God's true king. This is a model of the relationship we are to have with God's Messiah, See, perhaps I can illustrate it this way. Imagine you are at a funeral. The person has been building up the deceased brilliantly in similar ways to David. We've seen the slideshow of his life. We've remembered all the good things about him. We've praised his name to the rafters. And then the person giving the tribute says this. All these things we've said about Cousin Bob, he's the best of the best, but the very best thing you can say about Cousin Bob is that he loved me more than he loved his own wife. That'd be an awkward moment, wouldn't it? Or how about this? America, as you may have noticed, is heading towards an election between two bitter rivals, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And if you've uh, tuned into the TV debates, I don't know if they're even worthy of that title, uh, you'll have seen that they're not the most edifying pieces of TV you can watch. These two men have not got a kind word to say about each other. Now I have no idea who's going to win. But because we know him a little bit better, it's easier to imagine Donald Trump. So imagine with me, Donald Trump has won the election by a landslide. And Joe Biden's nose is in the dirt, just as Saul's shield is in the dirt of Mount Gilboa. Now imagine, they always have these kind of parades at the end of an election, don't they, when the winner speaks to his supporters. Imagine. What do you think the first thing Donald Trump would do in that situation? Well, imagine if the first thing the newly elected president did was to teach all of his supporters this song, about how great Joe Biden really is. And he insisted that all of America learnt the song. Pretty extraordinary stuff. But then comes a sting in the tail. At the end of the song, he concludes, having said that Joe Biden is the best man in all of America. He says, actually, Joe Biden's son is something else. I don't even know if Joe Biden has a son. If he does, I'm sure he's called Joe Biden Jr. And so there's Trump at his supporters rally saying that actually all the things you could say about Joe Biden, Joe Biden Jr. is the best of the best of the best. And I want you to learn this song as a tribute to him. But you know what the best thing about Joe Biden Jr. is? That he voted for me. Not only that, He loves me more than he loves his own wife. Now, you may well be able to stretch your imagination to imagine Donald Trump saying that. But can you see the implication? If that is true, then that is how all of you should feel about me, is what he's saying. And this is exactly what David is saying here this public song that is to be taught for all of Israel, the doctrine of the nation, David is asking of their love for him. But of course, remember, David is no ordinary king. He is the king of God's own choice. The ruler God has put in place instead of Saul to bring a kingdom of righteousness and peace. He is the model of God's coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, he is the one to whom all should do as Jonathan did and give him their loyalty, their allegiance, their love, as if to God himself. Will Israel do that? Come back next time and see. But for now, I want to conclude with two simple but important lessons from this passage. We need to be human, and we need to be hopeful. Firstly, this passage teaches us to be human, to be realistic about our humanity. See, sometimes people talk about becoming a Christian as if it somehow elevates life onto another plane in which we can leave pain and suffering and grief behind as if being in Christ makes you immune from all the afflictions and the frustrations of the flesh. This is a great and dangerous error. It makes Christianity no better than the self-help philosophy that you can pick up on the counter of waterstones. Read a little bit each day makes you feel a little bit better. It's an emotional crutch. It's just the power of positive thinking. Now, the Bible teaches us to face the world as it really is. That when you become a Christian, you continue to live in this world. And that means you continue to enjoy the good creation, thankfully, friendship, family, health, exercise, sport, art, all the things that we enjoy and live to enjoy. And we are to enjoy those things with thankfulness to God. But the world is also broken. And one thing this passage teaches us is to lament the fact that we live in a broken world, that we live in the valley of the shadow of death, as David himself puts it. And by lament, I don't mean that we should complain and grumble. No doubt we do plenty of that already. Not many of us need teaching to complain and grumble. But by lament, I mean a proper biblical heartfelt acknowledgement that all is not well with the world. It's not a matter of yin and yang. It's not some kind of balance. It's not an illusion as Buddhism teaches. And it's certainly not like the start of the Lego movie where everything is awesome. Everything is not awesome. This world is broken. And people are broken and hurting and dying. And as Christians, We should not be so super spiritual that we brush this under the carpet. We should pour out our hearts to God and to each other that the world is not as it should be. And why is it so important that we do that? Because the more you grasp the frailty and frustration of the flesh, the more you will hope for the future that only Jesus can bring. See, David, our model Messiah here, the man after God's own heart, was somebody who grieved, and someone who suffered. And as he did so, he pointed forward to another who would come as a man, who would come in the flesh, I would experience all the frailty and the frustration of human life. And why did he do that? Why did God send Jesus to come as a baby in Bethlehem and to grow up in a world under the shadow of death and eventually to die himself and to enter into our experience of human flesh fully? Because God cared so much about our humanity that he came to redeem it for us. See, Jesus is is not like any other religious leader. He's not immune. He did not swoop down from heaven like the SWAT team on the helicopter. As we will hear in our song in a moment, he entered into the grimness and grief of human experience, and he lived it fully. If you've wept, at the graveside of a friend, Jesus has wept. If you've had a hard day, Jesus has had a harder day. If you've experienced the sadness of of this world, Jesus has experienced it too. And he's even entered the experience of death itself. He's come into our world to be crushed, to face the reality of death full on but that's not where the story ends. Jesus entered the valley of the shadow of death so he could do what David could not do, to conquer death itself. As we read on in 2 Samuel, we're going to see that David's reign is going to end as Saul's reign ended. That despite all the good things that are true of David, he is not in the end one to whom we should give our loyalty and love that one day Hannah's refrain, how the mighty have fallen, will also become a fitting epitaph of his grave too. But he points to the one for whom those words can never be true, to Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. The promise this morning is that all that is lost in this world will be given back through him. That if you've lost something, if you've experienced sadness, brokenness, there will be a time when Jesus puts it right. Revelation 21, when every tear is wiped away. When every broken heart, broken body, broken mind is mended. And therefore, the more you feel your humanity, the more we grieve what is lost in this world the more we look forward with hope to his coming. He who not only shared our humanity and entered the experience of death, but he broke its power so that we can have life to the full when he comes. Jonathan recognized David as God's king And he did the right thing by giving him his love, his loyalty, his hope. That is what we must do as we see the Lord Jesus Christ who has died and risen again to bring us into God's kingdom. Let's pray that we'll do that now. Father, we thank you for David's gracious surprising words that remind us to grieve for what is lost in a world under the shadow of death, but also point to our great hope, your coming King. We pray that we might bow in our hearts now to him in the midst of a broken world and turn our eyes to his kingdom that is coming a kingdom that will never disappoint. We pray it in his name. Amen.